Poetry. What is it good for? Is a production of Bar Crawl Radio Podcast. According to poet Darius Dautry, a poem cannot save a life, cannot fend off a dark alley attack, make you less woman or less poor or less black and thus treated equal, but a poem can introduce you to yourself. Poetry, What Is It Good For? is a podcast that uses poetry to consider that which troubles us with two poets who know each other's work. I'm Alan Winson, joined by Rebecca McKean and Chris Brandt, and we explore the immense practicality of poetry. This Poetry Good For a Conversation took place on the porch at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. We are speaking with not two, but three poets who make it their mission to produce public poetry readings. So with that, let's get started. Chris? Yeah, usually we interview poets um, about their poetry and so forth, and then I realized having led a poetry, hosted a poetry workshop, not a poetry workshop, a poetry series back in the 90s, it's a lot of work, and it is not work that is rewarded very lavishly, to put it mildly. Uh, it, there's, no, there's usually no money involved with it and pays very little attention to the host. So the question that occurred to me was, why do you do this? If it's so hard, so unremunerative, without recognition, why do you host series? We have three series hosts with us here who are also poets, of course. And I think with that, we'll have an introduction here. That's poetry, what it's good for uh, this episode. And uh, I'm Alan Winson. And I'm Rebecca McCain. And I'm Chris Brandt. And we're poetry good for, poetry what is it good for. And I think it's time to introduce our, our, uh, our guests here at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar. Okay, right. so with us today we have Anton Yakovlev, is a well-published poet, born in Moscow, Russia, and a graduate of Harvard University. His work can be found in over 70 journals, including The New Yorker, The Hopkins Review, and Poetry Daily as well as award-winning poetry chapbooks. Anton co-hosts the Carmen Street Metrics Poetry Reading Series in Manhattan and the Rutherford Red Wilbury Series in New Jersey, and at one time was the education director at the Bowery Poetry Club. Lola Kondakjian was born in Beirut, Lebanon, and has been a New Yorker since 1979. Lola was an editor at New York's Ararat Literary Quarterly, she has read at poetry festivals in Medellin, Colombia, Lima, Peru, Santiago, Chile, and the West Bank. And Lola heads up the Dead Armenian Poetry Society and produces audio for the Armenian Poetry Project. Her third book recently won the Minos and Kohar Prize in Contemporary Literature. Becky and I... And I also... ...first met Lola at the World Poetry Movement event called For a World Without Walls. Now, Chris, you've met Lola before that. No, yeah, I had. But I think that was the first time that we had really... That we interacted. kind of recognized each other at, yeah. that, at, at, at a, a church over on the east side. It was terrific. And we did a show on that. Yes. We did a poetry good for a show on that. And really, that was the, the genesis for this podcast. For the, because 
of that for the after that show, that first show that we did, we enjoyed it so much. We said, let's keep doing this. Right, exactly. And then and then poetry what it's good for came out of it. And we also have with us Rachel Eight. Perfect. Oh boy, that was a good guess. Uh, Rachel Eight is a magazine writer and blogger who has worked in consumer magazines for nearly two decades. She's written for publications like Time International, Red Book, Cosmo Girl, and others. And Rachel has contributed essays to the New York Times Motherload blog. She's taught writing at the New School for nearly a decade, and now is running her fashion publishing course at Parsons. We got that right? It was perfect for me 10 years ago. <laughs> okay. Well, what, I'm did, fine did, with it. Why did you correct what was uh, mistaken there? I actually left uh, Consumer Magazines when they died, basically, mm. um, in 2008, and I got my MFA at Sarah Lawrence College. I teach at their writing institute, and I now teach in the first year writing program at Eugene Lang College at the New School. I'm a short story writer, hugely, um, and have published in a lot of journals. Right. And uh, I, it says recent publications, but this may not be recent. No, those aren't recent. My recent publications, I just had something out two weeks ago in Fictive Dream. I've been in the White Review. Um, I've had something in Post Road, a, a lot of different stuff. Of course, I'm a little nervous now, so I'm forgetting everything. But, oh, no, no. Um, and I also used to, uh, used to run for two years a reading series called Crystal Radio Sessions I co-hosted at the KGB bar. Um, Which you don't do anymore. I don't do that anymore and I had explained um, to Chris uh, I love the KGB bar. It's a really fabulous supportive um, environment but uh, they were starting to need a bar minimum Oh. and as Chris was saying it's so much work to do these series I felt that that was a little bit of heavy lifting that I wasn't willing to do anymore. So I'm, I would love to expand it to another venue at some point. Right. But you certainly can talk from experience. Oh, yeah. About uh, hosting and running a, oh, a, poetry, yes. a poetry reading, even though it's, it's been in the past. One of the things that I always hear at a poetry reading is um, that the host says, make sure to tip the bartender. All right because the bartender doesn't get anything extra and people don't necessarily drink at a poetry reading and a lot of times they're free, right? You're not charging. So my question is, do bartenders do well at a poetry reading? Well, I would say that our KGB bartenders were quite happy, although it was a drum that I continued to beat all evening. Tip our wonderful bartenders. Well, why are bars chosen? Um, I mean, we, we're at Bar Crawl Radio and we do, we do bars. So why do a poetry reading at a bar and not, say, some other venue? Like, like uh, you, you just did one, Chris, at a pizza parlor, yeah. right? <laughs> yes. I, I'm, I'm not sure that was the best choice either. That wasn't the best choice, no. Right, right. Well, I've this never hosted that. one in a bar, but right. I've attended lots of bar events. Uh, I like the casual cool, relaxed atmosphere of a bar. Yeah. It feels less like a class or a lecture or uh, something official. Uh, so that, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I've uh, been to um, readings at theaters and, um, you know, one of the reading series that I co-host is at a theater right now. Uh, it's never taken place at the bar, but, you know, it's, it's a slightly different vibe. Uh, do, do people drink while they're listening to the poetry? And does that, does that help in 
Lubri- it lubricates. It lu- lubricates it, right. I was thinking maybe we should talk about each of your programs. Uh, what, what is it that you do? Maybe, Lola, we could start with yours, the, uh, the Dead Armenian Poetry Society. Yeah, it's something I started uh, around the time I was finishing grad school. We'd get together at my living room and we'd read poems by Armenian poets who have passed away. Uh, some of us had an opportunity to translate from Armenian into English, French, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was a bit of a literary exercise. It wasn't just an audio uh, enjoyment, but became mini class, mini literature, mini translation class. And it, and, uh, it grew to be something really wonderful. What? And it, so I had a lot of experience when I, when I organized the, the Against the Wall event that Chris mentioned. Um, I was well prepared, I knew a lot of people, and uh, uh, that was the, the reason, that, that was the sort of the, um, the seeds for my online uh, blog uh, called the Armenian Poetry Project, uh, which is going on almost 17 years now. I have audio recordings for it, and uh, it has a following. So it's basically a blog, and people suggest, people send me their own work, or I dig old books and, and uh, publish them. A lot of things are out of print now, so it's useful in that way. Right. Why, why dead Armenians? Uh, well, because we were concentrating on the deceased poets. Uh, for but the not reading. anymore. Uh, we, well, since the pandemic, I haven't had a gathering, uh, but I hope to be able to continue because it's a lot of fun. And everybody would bring a little, uh, you know, dish or something, and uh, we'd eat and and uh, discuss literature. Obviously, your work comes from the Armenian heritage. Yes. Um, and I noticed one of your projects is the Ararat Literary Quarterly. Can uh, you talk about that and tell us about the uh, Ararat, which is a magical mountain, uh, which is no longer in Armenia. It's Correct. It's currently in in Turkey, but you can see it from Armenia and the capital, the Yerevan. Um, the Adalat Quarterly no longer exists. I was on the editorial board, and that's where I, I honed a lot of my skills. Um, I have back issues, if anybody wants to see. Um, very few of them are digitized, unfortunately. But uh, I had a uh, great opportunity to work with Leo Hamalian, who taught at, uh, uh, I think, City University, uh, deceased a long time ago. Uh, and a lot of authors, uh, from Soroyan specialists to poets to playwrights, and it was an amazing school for me. Uh, I always loved literature, but to work with these individuals uh, in an editorial board was an amazing opportunity for me. I wanted to ask Anton, how you, how did you become a host of Carmine Street Metrics? Because when I first started attending those readings, you were not the host. I? found Carmine Street Metrics in May 2013. Just sort of started coming to the readings and eventually in 2014 at some point, uh, they asked me if I'd like to be one of the co-hosts. So for a while I was one of the co-hosts with um, Wendy Sloan and Quincy Lair. Then Quincy moved to uh, California, to Los Angeles. And now it's uh, Wendy Sloan, Teresco and myself. So I've been a co-host for about eight years at this point. What is a metrical poem? So a metrical poem, yeah, it's anything that has a meter and maybe a rhyme. It's an identity, it's kind of a niche for the reading series that distinguishes it from others, that it welcomes, it encourages metrical poetry, you know, poems that are written in meter, 
probably you know meter and rhyme, but um, we have features, uh, feature readers, and open mic readers that could be metrical, could be freevers. Uh, maybe you know a bit of emphasis on on meter because uh, it is kind of in this country, in this culture, it is a marginalized type of poetry. It is frequently frowned upon, considered kind of passé, which you know I disagree with. There is plenty of very sort of forward-looking and uh, contemporary metrical poem poetry that's um, being written right now. How uh, do you find the poets that you invite to your poetry readings? Kind of word of mouth, um, reading something in you know, in various magazines, uh, people knowing other people. Each host is usually involved in more than one thing and uh, has some kind of a, their own community that they can uh, kind of draw on. Is it pretty easy to get them? Do they all, you know, pretty much say, oh, yeah, sure? Most of the time, yeah. 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 I mean, most people, most poets love to read. Hey, Lola, what about you? Is it uh, easy to find poets to uh, join you? Yes. For my special projects, I've, I've, uh, most of the time people are available, unless they're out of the country or something. So I haven't organized anything recently except uh, call for papers about the pandemic. That was online, so most people are very happy to participate. Mm -hmm. I agree with Anton. Great, great. And Rachel, we haven't really talked to you about uh, your co-hosting of the Crystal Radio session series at KGB, which you did in the past. I did in the past. And and we we kind of glommed right onto it because it has the name radio in it. Oh, yeah, Yeah. sure. Was it it on the radio? Um, It was not. Uh, We have an upstate section of it, which is still in existence, that's a quarterly reading out of the Ancram Opera House. So that's been fun. It's a very different model, and my friend operates that. She's the upstate one. But that's like um, selected shorts. We get an actor to read a short story. So it's it's very different. Uh, For my part at the KGB bar... Um, I live in the neighborhood down in the East Village and I felt for a while I'd gone to get my MFA when I was older than most people I knew that would go to get it Um, and it felt very um, the reading world that I was being exposed to felt really hard to break into in a way like very academic very publishing focused and so it felt important to me to build a bridge between academic poets and friends that I admired and neighborhood poets and writers and friends and people who came up in a different way than purely MFA route. For a couple of years, we really prided ourselves on having a very diverse group of readers at every session. Um, it was fun. Yeah. Um, you, you, you bring up some, some interesting ideas in that last comment, Rachel, and that is that um, poetry for many of us is an academic exercise that we don't engage in. Um, I mean, uh, most people don't engage in, in poetry, even though we have a poet laureate, a new one now. And I, I wondered, is there any way that your presentations tried to make the poems more accessible to the audience, or were your audience just you know, academics who didn't need to be helped along? I would need, need to be helped along in some way. Is there a way that you make the poems accessible to just a general audience who's coming in and say, oh, that looks interesting. I've never done that before. How, how would you do that? Alcohol. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rich. Yeah. You know. So, I mean, do, do you ever consider that a poem might be 
you know, not metrical, rose are red, violets are blue, I love you, see so you love me. I mean, so you kind of, you, you, okay, I get that, but some poems, I, I need to read them. I need to see them on the page, and if I'm hearing them, can you help me in a poetry reading to get it? And how do you do that? Do you consider that? Anton, you're shaking your head, yes. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the performance, the performance style of the poet frequently is what helps get through that barrier. And many of the readers that we have, especially inviting us feature readers, we have three or you know two, three feature readers as well as Anton and Mike, um, it becomes a lot more engaging when you hear someone. In a way, the whole point of having a reading, of you know having poetry read out loud, is that it comes so much more alive. Something that rhymes, something that has a meter, would you often be easier to immediately respond to because it does have that kind of that, the built-in music. Poetry began as a spoken art yeah. and a heard art yes. and often uh, with music or often it was music and the metrical um, and rhyming um, aspects of poetry developed as a, as a mnemonic uh, for the poets who had to memorize, imagine Homer memorizing 12 books of the Iliad and 12 books of the Odyssey and performing them, or any of the medieval um, epic poets. Um, so it is, it is a help to the poets as well. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Without, without by any means dissing free verse, I completely agree right. with you because, like you know, mem the words "memorable" and "memorizable" are very close, <laughs> and it's easier to memorize something that has a regular, regular sort of rhythm. For the most part, I agree with what Chris said. I want to go back to that topic because it's very Western-oriented. By the way, there are obviously a lot of Chinese, Korean poets who didn't write. Uh, it was the haiku style, short and so forth and then there's Gilgamesh the story is a I mean it's it's practically anonymous but it's a very long poem um, so I I pride myself at, at, at my project for introducing Westerners to a near Eastern um, poetry tradition which is from pagan times and talks about the birth of a god and with golden eyes eyes and, and golden hair and all that. Uh, so uh, I would like to keep the conversation going maybe at another time about non-Western traditions, but I just wanted to mention that. Right, so. right, right. Uh, do, do, do you ever precede the poem or follow the poem with an explanation of what's going on, or does the poem just stand on its own? Do you have discussions afterwards, or is it just the poem's there, you get it, you don't get it, whatever you get, that's, that's what you go home with? Uh, I prefer not to explain anything, but I have I agree with everybody at, around the table that when it's read on the paper, a lot of people don't get it, but they say, wow, the poem really came alive to me because you read it or I heard the author read it. And uh, I really like that very much, um, to hear that kind of feedback. It's very useful to me. And, and I would argue, though, that not all authors are good at reading uh, prose or poetry. I agree. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry, friends. No, I agree. No, no one here. No one present. Yeah. 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 
So, I mean, I mean how, how do you deal with that? I mean, if you have a poet who's writing great poetry, but doesn't know how to read it, he's not a performer. Do you ever have like an actor come in and do? You never do. The poet is always reading the poetry. For me, yes. Me as well. Same. I mean, to be honest, uh, if somebody is uh, really terrible at reading poetry, and you know, it's uh, it's rare. It, it doesn't happen a lot at all. But it is, to you know, one of the criteria when we, when Therese and Wendy and I talk about like plan the f- next year, like who is going to read. If if somebody is a wonderful reader, is an amazing reader, that's kind of uh, part of the reason that we might want to have them. Uh, read, you know, right. in the, the selection of the feature readers, that that is part of the um, part of the consideration. Are they going to be engaging and you know really interesting to to listen to? As a former actor, and Chris is an actor also, you know that every a lot is an interpretation, and a poem can be interpreted this way or that way or that way or that way. We've heard Martina's father read his poems. He is brilliant, brilliant. But I know there's other ways to read his poems. I think different reading styles also come in and out of favor at least when I'm looking at the decades that I've been attending them I feel like back in the 90s I was very active in the Albany poetry scene and at that time it was very performative it felt extremely get up there and be your sexiest most audacious self and Mm -hmm. that was what was well regarded and it was kind of like I found it slightly nauseating, you know, that it was just this so over-the-top, like, be the sexy beast on top of the bar table kind of reading style. It sounds and like that kind of, kind of poetry reading I want to go to. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, and, I, and you can still find them. Um, but I, I feel like that almost, and correct me, please, if I'm wrong, um, I feel like that kind of fell a little bit out. I don't want to say of favor, but... I've seen more serious poetry readings since then. Well, Um, well, and also, different poets have different theories about how to read. Like, for example, uh, Linda Gregg, the late Linda Gregg, she was a magnificent poet, and she insisted on reading her poems in a neutral kind of voice so as not to impose an interpretation on the hearer. And... I didn't. I disagreed with her on that, but that was her thing. Do you ever have a poet read a poem twice? Uh, only at the Dead Armenian Poetry Society. <laughs> you do. You do that. Uh, some people will say, "I'm sorry. Can you can you read that first stanza again?" Yeah. Yeah, so. because I, I need to hear it again. A poem kind of like you absorb it yeah. over time, and you don't. Sometimes I, we've had it on this show where I've had a poet say, "Read that again." Yeah. And you suggested different readings. I suggested a different kind of reading of it, too, yeah, which was a little audacious on my part. But When I read a poem, I have to read it over and over again. It makes me think that it would be a cool idea to bring in a projector so that when people mm-hmm. are reading, you can actually see what's on the, on the screen. I mean, there's, we know so much more now about different kinds of learners. Exactly. Exactly, Rachel. I mean, because I... I needed to read, I, Chris was saying, no, we're just to have them read the poem. No, I have to gotta see the poem, I gotta look at it, and now I wanna listen to them read it. Penn right? does that at the World Voices Festival, which yeah. they started uh, nearly two decades ago. Right, yeah. right, right, right. I, I have one more question before we hear some poetry, okay? When did this start? 
if you like the poem, the clipping thing, and not the graduate school. I don't know. I, I know I a theory, and I have, I have a feeling Chris will know if I'm right or not. Do you know? It, to me, I've heard that it began on McDougal Street when the beatniks would be told not to wake oh. their neighbors. Oh. Yeah. Oh, wow. mm, I like that theory. Oh, the same theory I heard. That makes sense. It does. Yeah. 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 Any other theories? Well, oh, it's also it? the visual sometimes. You yeah. know, like on Zoom, sometimes everybody, like, you know, we've had the yeah. readings on Zoom for two oh. years for various reasons. And sometimes everyone is muted, but people will still do that because it's like it's the visual that matters sometimes. Right. I, I've got another theory. I think it began with the Adams Family series. Which were influenced by the Beatles. Right. So, so maybe. You're listening to Poetry What Is It Good For podcast, and we're talking about poetry readings. Part of the whole encouragement to tip the bartender, we always have a break when, uh, you know, the host will say, please get another drink. Uh, and tip the bartender. And talk to each other. Uh, you know, talk to each other, uh, buy books. You know, people usually bring their books that they can sign and sell to the um, to anyone that would wants. Um, and um, a lot of conversations develop where, you know, people might ask, you know, what did you mean by that poem? Or I really like that line. Or I really, you know, that poem really struck me. You know, maybe exchange some personal experience. So, yeah, there is a fair amount of conversation that is generated sort of after a reading. Right. I'd love to just add one thing, though, about the Zoom since that happened since COVID, another way that audience was um, communicating with the writers was in the chat. Mm -hmm. They would, you'd be able to write a line that really stirred you, and that was really encouraging. I know for writers to see certain why couldn't you do that live? Spots. Why can't you do that alive? I mean, people could message and. Okay, there's an idea. You can, well, you can pass papers. Or pass it papers around, right, right? I mean, maybe it could be considered distracting, but it would be kind of an interesting gimmick or like an interesting idea. I think it would be more than a gimmick. It's well, I, I don't mean gimmick necessarily as a pejorative term, but sort of like uh, if everybody got like some um, um, cue cards at the beginning of the reading and they can hand them out. Uh, you know. All right, so we're, we're developing new ideas for yes. poetry reading. Chris? Hey, that reminds me of, of when, when uh, Poetry Slams began yes. in New York. It was, they were brought to New York from Chicago. Where, and the, at first, they were, each judge in the audience invented their own series of, of uh, marks for the poem. It could be 1 through 10. It could be 10 through 1. It could be names of cars. It could be names of animals. And that was hilariously funny. And that stopped when, I remember the, the occasion, one poet at the New Yorican uh, was incredibly upset that his poem was not being respected as it should be. And he burst into tears. Mm. And after that, it became a a, a regular-ranked thing, and then it got money connected with it, and then forget about it. Mm. Mm. I guess you got to be careful when you're dealing with artists who are, they are their poems, right? I mean, does it ever happen where a poet just doesn't 
doesn't want to share or feels like they Anton, you're saying yes. Can you think of an instance? Well, sometimes people just don't want, you know, there we, we get sometimes people that just come and uh, don't participate in the open mic and they might be fantastic poets, but they just like not in the place where they want to share something. And that is very respected. Uh, you know, sometimes people might encourage them to say, you know, we, we love your work so much. You know, can't you, like, would you like to share something? But they say, well, you know, not right now or not for a while. Yeah. Or not, I'm not... I'm and not you, in the place right now. And you know they're good. You know that this exactly. stuff is yeah. good, and it's, it's a shame. Seems to me we're about a half hour into this conversation, and we should hear some poetry. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who would like to start, but uh, Chris, why don't you say how we set this up? You set this up, really. Well, uh, we set it up, to, and we asked each of the three hosts, who are, as I said, poets themselves, to read one poem of their own and one poem that came up during one of their readings, uh, one of their, the readings that they've hosted, at, that particularly struck them uh, as an unexpected revelation. Lola, why don't we begin with you? Okay. Sure. Why don't you, maybe we can start with um, your poem. Yes. And then we can move on to the poem that you chose and tell us why you chose it. Thank you, first of all, for the invitation. It's great to see everyone again and to meet Anton and Cheryl. This poem is entirely on food, family, and loss. At the market, it's a matter of patience, a matter of really wanting to cook. The instructions are simple. Cut, chop, heat the pan and add oil, and then add spices and the ingredients. Let simmer, mix once in a while, and voila. The difficulty comes in finding the ingredients. Our busy lives do not forbid us from cooking. They prevent us from going to the farmer's market on Saturday, schmoozing with the lettuce guy. A relationship which set on the right course will bring you ramps in the spring, then garlic scapes in early summer, leading to dinner invites when the farmer arrives with a bouquet of heirloom tomatoes. Or in another scenario, going to Jackson Heights for Indian spices, where you ask the woman next to you at Patel Brothers, on a scale of 1 to 10, is this curry an 11? And she will answer that in her country it is mild enough for breakfast, which you guess is a polite exaggeration. Or another day, hoofing it to New Jersey, first in a small van for $2.50, which drops you at the Armenian bakery, where you buy a dozen lahmacuns, then walk six blocks to the Turkish market to get cheese, pistachios, and dried vegetables from the city where your grandparents were, then try to reconstruct their lives through a sample of taste bud experiences, wondering if they liked their cheese salty, or was that just a way to preserve it? Wondering if a trip back to Hassan Bailey is possible. Wondering what our lives would be like if we had never been forced off those lands. Imagining my great-grandfather's estate. If my family members had not been persecuted for their ethnicity and we had stayed behind, would I have been a writer still? Would I have been a spinster, a mother, a grandmother by now? Would I have been a culinary explorer going to faraway markets to purchase special ingredients to make for my family and friends? In what language would I be shopping? Would I have the same hobbies and pastimes? Would I have the same opportunities to explore music from different parts of the world? Would I have traveled extensively? I'm certain my life would be unrecognizable, yet more organic, 
growing on the land of my forefathers, knowing my extended family well, the continuity of things, passing down knowledge, recipes, clothes, and family heirlooms. A feeling of loss. I will never know what my great-grandparents looked like, where their homes were, how they decorated their rooms. I will never know if I inherited my hair color, looks, styles, the shape of my brows, the color of my eyes, my talents, from then or not. I will never know what vistas they looked upon a hundred years ago when they sipped their morning coffee, what music they listened to, if they grew some of their food on that land, whether or not they made preserves. I will never know what layers of my soul I am missing. I couldn't help but think of Ukraine yeah. and all that's being lost and, and gained in a way. Because part of that poem is not just about loss. Yes, indeed. And, yeah. and, and thank you for that compliment because it makes me feel like it's a universal theme. Um, unfortunately, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. So I want to read a poem that I did not know as a kid, even though I knew this author and his work. His name is Daniel Varoujan. It's a pen name of an Armenian poet born in the eastern part of what is now Turkey. Uh, he was Catholic. His family had become Catholic. And he went to Istanbul to study with the Mkhitaryist monks, then went to secondary school in Venice, where the monks have an island called St. Lazarus, and eventually to uh, the University of Ghent, or Gond in those days. It was still French uh, language school. And uh, Daniel returned to Istanbul to teach. He was a school principal, in, 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 and April 24, he was one of the intellectuals picked up, and he was uh, savagely assassinated uh, August of that year. Luckily, his last um, manuscript was saved somehow, and it was translated beautifully the entire book is translated by Tatum Sonens, who is in Boston. And I want to read the poem called Antastan. Antastan is an annual uh, church uh, rite in the Armenian Apostolic Church where they bless the four corners of the church and therefore the world. But this is just the idea that he captures. It's a, it's a peace, um, encouraging peace uh, poem. I want to read, if I may, one stanza in Armenian and then the rest in the translation. Antastan. Arevelian gom nashkari, charachun torla, voch aruner, kurtinkosin, lain yeragin mech, agosin. Yev uyep hunche gochnagana menkuragi, otner kuchun torla. Antastan. And this is published posthumously, by the way. At the eastern part of the earth, let there be peace. Let sweat, not blood, flow in the broad vein of the furrow, and at the toll of each hamlet's bell, let there rise hymns of exaltation. At the western part of the earth, let there be fecundity. Let each star sparkle with dew, and each husk be cast in gold. And as the sheep graze on the hills, let bud and blossom bloom. At the northern part of the earth, let there be abundance. In the golden sea of the wheat field, let the scythe swim incessantly, and as gates of granaries open wide, jubilation let there be. At the southern part of the earth, let all things bear fruit. Let the honey thrive in the beehive, and may the wine run over the cups. And when brides bake the blessed bread, 
Let the songs of love swell and spread. Yes, thank you very much, Lola. This is gorgeous. I mean, both of them are gorgeous and very, very, very different. I loved hearing it in, in Armenian, too, at first, because it, it emphasizes how much poetry is musical. Even if there's no tune to it or no melody, it's, the words are musical. Yeah, I mean, it's, the, the story is just awful. I mean, killing a poet is like, you don't kill poets. Or killing a, killing a whole country is... Or killing a whole country, but, you know, or you kill a politician, soldier. <laughs> but a poet, you don't kill a poet. Um, Anton, would you like to share what, what you brought? poem by yourself and a poem from one of the um, presentations, poetry presentations that you um, have hosted. It's hard for me to resist uh, mentioning that, you know, poet, being a poet seems to be a very dangerous occupation, has been historically, especially in some political regimes and any authoritarian regimes, uh, thinking about all of the, um, like, just the insane numbers of poets that were murdered um, in uh, the 1920s, 1930s in the Soviet Union, um, almost to the point that it's a majority of well-known poets uh, who, that we read today, um, or at least so it seems. Um, it does ironically testify to the, the power of the word, the, per, the perception that poetry is really a big deal, that it is really something that's, uh, I guess, to be feared in some cases. Um, anyway, so I'm going to read a poem of mine, uh, which I wrote a couple of years ago, and it was about, um, really I was thinking about the end of World War II, uh, but unfortunately, and I wish this wasn't the case, it sort of acquired a new currency and has felt more topical in the last few months for obvious reasons because of Ukraine. Post-war. All night, the phone rang. Bread loaves aped gravestones. When he found poems written in blood, he could only scream them. No musician knew how to carry weight. But always, always the memory of that sweater falling off her shoulder. Like it or not, she was an icon, a postage stamp. The sweat on her chest, the friendliness of her hands, Padding and ushers back in a bombed theater. Valentines hung on every tree, replacing the decomposed executed. It was hard not to think of yourself as a ghost. Still, somehow, love continued to tighten its biceps. He drank a milkshake made of ground-up doors. How quickly the fog moved in. One thing that struck me there is when you said poems written in blood, because I just found out that Yesenin's last poem was written in blood, in his own blood. Yeah, yeah and Sergei Yesenin was a poet. I, I translated 68 of his poems, and I had a, have a book of collected translations, and yeah, his, his last poem was um, an eight-line poem um, that he... You know, basically, you know, the first line is, goodbye, my friend, goodbye. Um, and he handed a piece of paper to a friend, like a folded piece of paper, um, and the friend didn't read it for a day. Uh, and then like the next day he found out that he had uh, hanged himself 
uh, or Bin Hong. I mean, there is a bit of a controversy about that. His uh, descendants, his grandchildren, think that he was murdered. Uh, but you know, basically, the, the official theory is that he is uh, he, he committed suicide. You can uh, make there, there's a lot of evidence for both um, sides of the argument. I teach film, and I love poetry that pulls up images that kind of like splashes of images. The sweater falling off her shoulder. It's like it gets right to your heart. It got, I mean, it goes right to your gut. The sweater falling off her shoulder. Poetry can do things that prose can't do. Yeah. Just can't do. Yeah. And it's mysterious. You don't necessarily understand the image, but the image has that tremendous impact nonetheless. Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I, I have made films in the past as well, and so I kind of think visually, uh, and also, like, there were some films that I was thinking about in writing that poem, including uh, Zentropa by Lars von Trier, uh, like, the, the executed hanging in the, in the streets, you know, there were some, uh, sort of, like, some film references hidden in that poem. Wow. But, you know, yeah. the, the sad thing about that is that it almost seems more hopeful, more positive, with all of the horrible things that are in the poem, it feels more optimistic than what's currently happening in Ukraine. And that's the thing that's really like... Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, because, um, you know, it's almost about kind of, it's, you know, almost called post-war. It's, um, you know, there's this guy is being distracted by, you know, this woman patting an usher's back in the bomb theater. So she's encouraging him. He's like in love with her. Valentines are replacing the executed. So it's almost like life goes on in spite of everything. And it's horrible because there are all those things that happen, but it's like love continued to tighten in biceps. And it's, you know, the, the people still fall in love even after, after a war. Uh, and in a sense, right now, one wishes, like I wish for that moment to arrive in Ukraine, because right now it's still in the middle of the war and it's still, the, the atrocities are happening in, the, in real time. Maybe this maybe this will be off the point. You are Russian. I mean, um, you know the Russian mind. Maybe maybe you know a little bit about how how it works. Is is this going to end? Well, it will end eventually. Yeah. But it's hard to predict when. I don't dare make predictions. Okay. It could uh, drag on for a long time, unfortunately, uh, because um, you know the, the will of. Um, the side that's waging war seems to be very dead set on it. Um, I mean, I, I wait for day when there is hope of it ending. For the moment, it's, it still seems very bleak. Okay. And one of yours. So well, that, that was one of That was one of yours. So uh, one, one that you brought in that was read it up. A poetry reading that you were running. Yeah, yes, that you were running. Yeah. So I'm going to read a poem by David Yezi, who was a recent feature reader in April at Carmen Street Metrics, and uh, one of the poems that really struck me. He also it also uh, just happened that uh, the very first Carmen Street Metrics uh, reading that I attended in May 2013, he was one of the features as well. So it seems uh, fitting, um, and he's a poet that I very much admire. Um, this poem is called, What's Changed? The thing that stung me most after you died was how I couldn't tell my news to you. It made it so my good days barely mattered. Nearer your age today, I realize surprisingly, because it's unfamiliar, 
that just now I am ludicrously happy. I think of you. How pleased you were to hear when things were going well, when life was all you'd hoped for me, your daily inward prayer. I feel you here. A house ran chirps outside. An airplane rides home in the higher air. So quiet, you can hear me. Leaves, a breeze. An hour on, this windfall will be gone. This news is for you alone. I say it quickly, while I, while I am once again, briefly, your son. So, oh. I, I guess, I, don't know, I mean, I guess you know the, the poem. One of the one of the things that I find so effective about this poem and it's the type of poem that I really like is that it states a lot of things very plainly and very directly but if you think about it there is a lot behind a lot of the images and how we came to that and why is why is he incredibly happy right now uh, what exactly is happening how did, did his mind go to this point to think of his his father that you know it, it so it's uh, it's very easy to take in on a superficial level, but it, it rewards thinking about every line and kind of the things between the lines. It's, it's those particular things um, that really are not about remembering your, uh, to me it was my mother. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Um, Could be, yeah. I guess a house so. rent chirping, a plane going over, a breeze blowing by. That's I'm ready to break down. That's life. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yes. That's the essence of life. It's the breeze. It's the sound of a wren. It's paying attention to that stuff. I think most of us don't. No, we're all too concerned with uh, what's going to happen next, how much money we're going to make, are we gonna, or, or do we have enough insurance, et cetera, et cetera. <sighs> Yeah, and it's true. It could be mother, it could be father. Yeah, it's it. You know, I I guess the the reason that I kind of, in a um, subconscious way, uh, assumed it was father is because it doesn't uh, say father you know, in there. At it all. does not at all. <laughs> it, so the reason that I assumed is that you know I didn't. I, I thought you know, closer nearer your age today. So and because he is a man, so so it's kind of like I. Uh, drew that parallel, but it is very true that this is like the poem is, is universal. It could be either parent, and uh, everything holds up. So, right. uh, yeah, exactly. And it's it's kind of like that moment when the moments when we stop thinking about the next thing we have to do during the day. Uh, that's when we get attuned to something that's eternal, something that's always there, um, and that's what this poem's about. Thank you so much, Anton. Thank you for sharing, Rachel. What did you bring for us? Well, given that I'm a short story writer these days, I did not bring my own work, um, but I brought a poem by a writer that I hugely admire. And um, I had read one of his poems. His name is Sadiq Zukogi, and he's a Nigerian poet who lost a daughter when she was very, very young and wrote this book as a year-long observation and elegy around his mourning. It's called Your Crib, My Kibla. Um, I'm delighted to say that he's been nominated for the uh, 
the Nigerian Literature Award this year. So, Tell us his name again. His name is Sadiq Zukogi, and it's spelled S-A-D-D-I-Q. Last name D like David, Z like zebra, U-K-O-G-I. And I'd like to read uh, one poem. It's called Learning About Constellations. And given the sad things we've been talking about in the last half hour, um, I feel like we're all trying to hang on to some of the happy moments. And I wanted to read this poem because I read it in a new light after seeing those incredible NASA images that were just unveiled. So that's been something that I've been personally uh, just hanging on to with your life. So this is uh, Sadiq's poem called Your Crib, My Kibla, Learning About Constellations. Today, Baha is not dead. She is 12 years old, sits behind a flower vase, presses her thumb to the clay, her heart buds into a magnificent sun, water falls its warmth all over her satin face. Taller than all her classmates, in the corner she leans her head to white paper, carves moons out of her notebook, while other children sit and listen to the teacher. The class is learning about constellations. She takes colors off a flower, folds it to her skin, a chameleon gathering quotes from leaves. She questions daisies, reveals all suggestions when he stares into her eyes. Baha grabs a speck of darkness, molds it into a moth, and places it in the darkest point in his eyes. He sits close to his daughter in the yard, joins her in the moths. Baha is not dead. She is walking her way into myth, a world of new constellations where buried milk nourishes the placenta to heal his broken bones, broken eggshell of his heart, mend each back together with the energy of a clock that never stops moving backward. That deserves silence at the end of it. It's a very moving poem. Yeah, it's like after a poem, you have, that, you have to have that silence, that moment of just inward well, some feeling. Of, I, I can think of some E. e. Cummings poems that need yelling after them. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or Martina Spada. Or Martina, yeah. You know, I had, I had one last question, and I, again, I, I thank each of you for uh, Lola, Anton, and Rachel for joining us here on this conversation. More of us should be attending poetry readings. Um, I urge people to do that and we do our little piece here on poetry, what is it good for? To try to get the word out that poetry is important. But I wanted to end up with this and if my co-hosts want to end up with something else, we certainly can do that. We live in a flawed country. This country is not the dream that it was supposed to be. Um, can poetry help? Fifteen words each. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we could start with Shelley. Poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world, but it's the unacknowledged that yeah. always struck me about that. Yeah, if they, if they survive the political uh, upheavals. Yeah. Any ideas? Why? Why poetry? Why do you have you, have you dedicated your life to poetry or to writing? 
Well, to writing and to teaching. Um, I'm in my 20th year at the new school and working with first year writing students who come from all over the world to New York City to chase their dreams. It's still amazing that, it's amazing to see young people embrace the power of their voices and support one another so earnestly and lovingly and passionately. I see so much um, support between them. They are having their own readings. They're putting out their own chapbooks. They are beating the pavement, and they're doing it in ways that are unknown to us. They're finding new ways to reach out to people through social media. Through, um, and, and I've just found it very, very heartening. And I, I see you shaking your head, Anton. Have you seen the same? Um, I thought back to the quote from William Carlos Williams. Uh, it is difficult to get news, the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. I think that's absolutely true, and it goes with the unacknowledged legislation that, you know, it could stay in the background. But I think, you know, the awareness of poems, I, I think there is more awareness of poetry these days. Sometimes, jokingly or not, I say that we live in the golden age of poetry. Um, maybe not because of the respect poem poetry gets uh, in popular culture, which it generally does not, but because of the amount of good work that actually is being produced all over the world. I mean, if you think about like how many thousands of really, really good poem, poets are writing uh, right now. I mean, I don't know. Hundreds of thousands. I mean, it could. It. I feel like the number is astronomical. The way that poetry helps. One of the ways I think is just making people that read it pay attention to kind of those moments, to the specific ideas, to the inter the connection of different ideas and different images to each other, and just kind of become more aware of the world around them and thereby become more attentive and probably more caring individuals as a result of that. Lola, any thoughts? My feeling is that when, um, outside of theater, poetry is the second most attended live performance. Hmm. People don't throw away their poetry books like they throw away or put in the second you know, bin that's a great Co cookbook, uh, That's cookbooks great. and That's fiction and, you, you know, really 90 days for it fluent French and Italian and all those things. People don't throw. <laughs> I'm always looking, by the way. I'm always looking in my neighborhood for anybody who, you know, so unless there's a deceased person and they're getting rid of everything, yeah, poetry survives. That is po amazing. Poetry. People do not throw away their poetry books. Yeah, and poetry can sneak up on you. Because you, you, you're expecting, you're listening to the music, you're listening to the words, the images, and so forth. And then one of those images, like the sweater falling off her shoulder, sneaks up on you. And you have no idea why it affects you so much. And you don't have to. Thank you very much, all, uh, for, for joining us. Thank you, guys. Um, Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for yeah, having thank us. Thank you so much. You're tuned to the Poetry What Is It Good For podcast. Let us know if you want to receive the Poetry What Is It Good For newsletter with updates on our postings. You can write us at poetrygoodfor, that's one word, poetrygoodfor at gmail.com. And consider donating to our efforts at our website, poetrygoodfor.com. 
And a great big thank you to Tim Gopperud for giving us permission to use his composition, Fantasia on Three French Carols, performed by Carrie Vecchioni on oboe and Ralph Erdahl on double bass, otherwise known as Oboe Bass. Mm-hmm. 